Can you hear, can you hear that through the speaker? Yes, okay. <coughs> it is Feb January 31st, and we are doing Lesson 17 in Disciple Bible Study. And <coughs> I sure hope you enjoyed that reading. Uh, relatively short, familiar for folks. You've read these before? Um, <coughs> what I wanted to do, if it's okay, is not speed through these, but talk a little bit about <coughs> larger issues, go through each book, and then we have this chance to kind of sift through the last 16 weeks together, if that seems okay, uh, on a large scale, mind you. <coughs> I, it worked out okay this morning, according to me, so I, I think it will work out okay today as well. All right, so <coughs> the first thing, just to make sure, because she's been saying it in the video, and I'm not sure we, we mentioned it, <coughs> is that word diaspora. Uh, the word diaspora refers to basically Jewish people that are spread out through the ancient world. So they're not, they're not living just in Judah now, <coughs> the territory of Judah. They're now in Babylon and Assyria, and they make their way down to Egypt. We call that diaspora is just, again, the, the sort of the dispersion throughout the world. And, and a good reminder is, <coughs> why are they called Jews in the first place, and when did that happen? The word Jews, <coughs> of course, is just short for Judah. Those are people from Judah. Those are the Jews. And that word doesn't really appear until after the Babylonian exile. So I don't know if you've tracked this in the beginning. They're the Hebrews. And then the Hebrews split into the kingdoms, the Israelites, and the kingdom of Judah. And then after the exile, we talk about them being as the Jews. Uh, now, interesting with Esther, it doesn't necessarily mean a religious category, and I would tell you the same is actually relatively true today. <laughs> Jew is more of an ethnic category. For the last uh, 800 years, you're Jewish if your mother is. Now, that's not always how it's been. It was patrilineal. Uh, that switched over sometime around 800 years ago. I used to know why, but uh, I don't remember. Uh, anyway, uh, so, so when you say, when you read the Gospel of John and the Jews killed Jesus, of course what John means is the people from Judah who are the leaders of Judah. He doesn't mean all the religious Jews. He means people from the territory of Judah. I hope that's, that's helpful because John actually is not anti-Jewish. He's anti-leadership of the people in Judah. Um, okay, the other thing that's helpful maybe is about Esther. Esther is really, and this is a Russian word, pogrom. Maybe you know it. I mean, we, get, we unfortunately have lots of words like Holocaust and Inquisition and ghetto from different languages, right? Ghetto is Italian. That was in Venice. Pogrom is Russian. Uh, and, and, and so if you're, if you're Jewish today, religiously or ethnically, Esther is really the story of the archetypal pogrom. It is people who hate you for being you, not because of the moral decisions that you make, not because you challenge their customs, but because you're different. And in the book, right, um, the archetypal Hitler, who is Haman, who is worse than Hitler because he's the archetype of Hitler, is the first one to engineer a wholesale slaughter of people just for being Jewish. This is probably why it made it into the Bible. It's helpful to know in our Bible, the Christian Bible, Esther is sort of towards the back third. 
in the Jewish Bible, which has all the same books that our Bible has, they're in different order. Esther's dead last. <laughs> and it's there because it has the least authority if you're Jewish. If you're Jewish, it probably got in there because it's about uh, survival of pogrom and because it describes why they do the festival of, of uh, Purim or Purim. Now, if you know about this, Purim happens relatively soon after Rosh Hashanah, the new year, and Yom Kippur, and you do a couple of things. You eat some little triangle-shaped cookies with jelly in the middle. Those are called hamantashen because they represent the three-cornered hat that Haman wore. Uh, you don't like to hear the name Haman. It's like the name Hitler, which is really bad, of course, if you're Jewish. So you have groggers. These are like noisemakers, the things that go like... <laughs> Anytime they read, see what you do, if you're Jewish, you go to the synagogue, they read the whole story of Esther, and anytime you hear the word Haman, you're supposed to <laughs> so you can't hear it. It's sort of like, boo, this is the deal, right? Um, and then <coughs> the next day, you usually have a Purim carnival. It's like Jewish Halloween. You wear costumes because Esther was like the secret Jew. Y you know, nobody knew, and, and, and so you need to wear costumes. Um, <coughs> my daughter went to a Jewish preschool for a while, which is really great, and they had like a pony with pink hair, and they all ha this is what they did at the Purim Carnival, and there's like the same thing you'd have at the Fall Festival, like, except that the, the miniature golf was shaped like Israel, you know, and, you, and the hole was like Jerusalem. You had to, anyway, this is the kind of stuff that you do uh, at Purim. It's sweet. The other thing, by the way, you do is you're supposed to drink so much wine that by the end of the story, you can't tell the difference between the name Haman and Mordechai. Uh -huh, hopefully you got that. <laughs> All right, so, so that's Purim. And that's a major Jewish festival, and, and this is why probably it's in the Jewish Bible, because it says why they do it. Whew. Now, a <coughs> couple of things. You read the book, so I don't want to line by line it, but I do want to say, you know, the book begins with the king showing all kinds of opulence. He's got this huge party, and they're going kind of down into the cellar, and people can pick whatever they want. Um, um, priceless wines, y you know, the, 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 these are uh, things that are of astronomical value and rarity, and anybody can pick their own wine, and after seven days of heavy drinking, the king decides he'll show off to a bunch of men his queen, named Vashti. Some commentaries you read will say he intended to parade her naked. I, I, how do you know that? The truth is, a room full of drunk men is not a safe place for a woman. <laughs> Nothing positive will come from that. And so Vashti, interestingly enough, says no. She defies the king. Well, we tell you, a modern feminist read is that the, the shero of Esther is Vashti. And that Esther is not the shero, Vashti is, because she says no. Just think that's interesting, right? <coughs> well, the men are really concerned because if Vashti says no, then other women might say no. You understand why feminist uh, scholarship makes her the shero, right? So they say, well, geez, women might, you know, they might defy their husbands who own them throughout the empire, so set an example. Interestingly, the king doesn't kill Vashti, he just exiles her, right? So this sets an example. And then they need a new queen because it's hard to be the queen when you can't see the king. So they have, really, the largest beauty pageant of sorts. Um, it's a different kind of pageant than you're used to. <laughs> what, what happens is, throughout the empire, in each little uh, town, uh, 
the beauty of the town goes on to compete at the county level. And then the county beauty winner can go to the state level, and then there's a whole bunch of finalists at the national level. So they send all the beauties there to Susa, apparently, <coughs> where they receive a year plus of beauty treatments, including things like Botox. I mean, I don't know. You know, ancient Botox and frankincense and myrrh and aloes for a whole year. And then here's how the pageant is decided. All the beauties spend a night with the king, and the one who pleases him the most is the winner. It is unlikely that there was a reading competition or uh, a speech about world peace. I mean, you just need to know that if you've seen the book A Night with the King, that's a real good hint to you how the night was spent with the king, and the criterion for judgment was not juggling. <coughs> Feminist uh, readers, you see, are already identifying this as a problem for Esther, who essentially submits to the patriarchal system. She gives her body over to the king. Interestingly enough, the, the eunuch in charge of this knows the king well and tells Esther what the king likes. I don't know if you noticed this. So he says, this is how you please the king, which is, you know, this is an NC-17 movie. Esther takes the advice and pleases the king. So now she will be the queen. In the meantime... <laughs> Her uncle, because Esther's an orphan, right? Her uncle Mordechai saves the king and gets written in a book. And then there's this guy, Haman, who hates Mordechai because Mordechai won't bow down to him. That is probably because Mordechai's Jewish. That's important. She said there's nothing about religion in the book. I don't think that's right. She won't bow down to, Morde to, to Haman. So Haman hates him and decides not just to get rid of Mordechai, but to kill all of Mordechai's people. He offers the king 10,000 talents. That's a lot of weight, of, uh, rather shekels. The king says, you can kill them all for free. <coughs> That's really troubling, right? This is, this is a, a, a free pogrom. And then, and then the plot thickens, right? Um, <coughs> Mordechai fasts. He tears his clothes. He's in ashes. Esther says, why are you doing this? He says, you've got to save us. And she says, I can't go into the king unbidden or, or I'll die. And he says, yeah, you may die when you go to the king, but if you don't, you're going to die in this pogrom. And if you don't have the courage, deliverance will come from somebody else. But hey, maybe this is the whole point. You slept your way to the top. <laughs> Sorry, that's the message of the book, right? Maybe that worked so that now you could go and advocate for your people. So she decides to do it, right? And, and, and sneakily, there's a banquet. Like, I just want you to come to dinner. What do you want? I want you to come to another dinner. <laughs> the plot sort of thickens, and we end up with some poetic justice, right? Like the king can't sleep, hears about Mordechai saving him, makes Haman lead him through the streets. Haman builds a 75-foot either gallows or pike to impale people on, intends it for Mordechai. Haman is hoisted on his own petard, right? I mean, this is poetic justice. She says it's funny. I don't think it's funny. I just think it's poetic justice, if that's okay to say. God's not mentioned a single time. And, and then, really, that's the book of Esther. And so at the end, the people who were going to have a pogrom carried out against them are now able to defend themselves and kill their enemies. They don't loot their enemies, they just kill them. Now, 
Keep in mind that if this is written to people at the same time as the books read last week, who were under oppression just for being Jewish by Antiochus Epiphanes IV, right? You can't have Torah, can't circumcise your kids. <coughs> this has a, sort of a message of hope. This has a message that says, hey, you're going to lose a lot in this rebellion, but maybe all the stuff you got was so you could rebel. Right? I mean, think through this. I don't think she's right about this is how Jewish people and Gentiles live in harmony. I think this is a message about people um, defending their identity in the middle of threats and what it is they hope for and how they're to carry on. You be the judge of that, but I just want to give you an alternate sort of read on that. Now, what about Esther if you're a feminist? Well, she does what women have done for a long time. She works the system. And in the end... She sort of plays the secondary role very well, and in so doing, she ends up on top of the patriarchy. This is descriptive of what women have done <laughs> for a long, long time. In some ways, it's interesting to think, I hope my daughter lives in a world where she can do this and say no, and that'll be the end. And at the same time, we know we have to survive. I hope my daughter never has to survive like that. That's all I have to say about Esther. <laughs> Did you have thoughts as you read through that I missed? No? <sighs> this is a really good line, isn't it? It's just a really nice line. Maybe... Maybe all that stuff was just to get ready for now. Yeah, that's nice. Well, should we talk about Jonah then? Jonah is this really great story because as a child, you love it. I mean, he gets swallowed by a whale, which is, of course, scientifically impossible because whales have baleens and you can't go through the baleen. Um, in Hebrew, in fact, it's not a whale. Um, <coughs> it's a, this is funny. The word he, in Hebrew, he, is translated she. No, who is he? Who? This is the word in Hebrew. Who? That means he. He, in Hebrew, means she, and dog means fish. So Jonah is swallowed by a dog gadol, a great fish. Jonah is definitely not a cute story. I want to tell you it's probably the most misinterpreted book in the Bible. It is without a doubt a satire. The whole book is hyperbolic, and ridiculous. Think, think, think through this. Th this book, I think, is actually maybe closer to being funny. Um, Esther is funny like, like Twelfth Night is by Shakespeare. Remember when you learned about comedy, like in the 10th grade? Comedy, and you're like, but it's not funny. Oh, yeah, yeah, comedy is a genre, you know, where there's a threat and it gets overcome. I mean, yeah, but it's not funny. Anyway, Esther's like that. This one is a satire. Um, <coughs> And, and, and notice how crazy it is. The word of the Lord comes unto Jonah and says, Go to Nineveh, the great city, and call against her, because her evil has arisen before me. And Jonah gets up and runs away. He goes into a boat that's going for Tarshish, which is maybe in Spain. It's at the edge of the world. Jonah is trying to sail off the world so that he ha doesn't have to do this. And in the meantime, <coughs> he runs into some really good, pious sailors. Now, I can tell you, having lived in Navy Town... 
Sailors are not good or pious. <laughs> they never have been, and they never will be. These, are the, these sailors, though, are just really sweet, you know? They're, they interview him, they talk. <coughs> There's this huge hurricane where the professional sailors are vomiting and crying and praying to whatever God, and Jonah's asleep inside the boat. Nobody sleeps through that storm, right? This is crazy. And then he says, it's my fault, throw me overboard, and they say, no, we would never do that. Any sailor would say, your fault, overboard. I mean, this is, n this is not what sailors do, right? They even try to row him to shore, okay? Again, I, I can tell you, <coughs> nobody in the Navy acts like this. So, <coughs> fine. They, they, they throw him overboard, the ship stops, and then they offer a sacrifice to God, and they're really sorry. And the fish swallows him, and then Jonah prays. He quotes a psalm, and he says, From the depths of Sheol I cry to you, and God will be my Savior. And of course, you know Jonah's not sorry at all, and you know that nobody's oppressing him. He's bringing this on himself. And at the end of his lovely prayer, the fish is nauseous with his piety and throws up. You've met those people before. I know you have. <laughs> and then Jonah goes into the city Nineveh. <clears throat> it takes three days to walk through it. 30 miles to walk through a city in the ancient world? I don't think so. This is a huge embellishment, right? And Jonah says this really powerful sermon. In 40 days, God's going to blow you up. That's it. And the people, oddly enough, proclaim the uber fast. That is where everybody in the kingdom is prohibited from eating and drinking, including the animals. They all have to put ashes on their head and tear their clothes, and then they go and they put sackcloth also on, and they put sackcloth on their animals. They did not do that. I just understand <laughs> they did not do that. But in the book, they did, so that you can see how contrite they are. And they say, who knows? Maybe God will repent of the evil God has spoken to do to us, and God won't do it. And sure enough, God sees the people, and in Hebrew, repents of the evil God has spoken to do to them and does not do it. And Jonah's reply in <coughs> chapter 4 is, go ahead and kill me because you're so merciful, and that's why I tried to run away. I hate how merciful you are. And God says, is it okay that you're this upset? And Jonah says, yes, and I wish I were dead. And then he sits and watches in case God blows the city up anyway. He knows it's not going to happen. And a plant grows up in the night, right? No, nobody actually knows what it is. <clears throat> but it gives him some shade. Everything's great. And then God appoints a worm, just like God appointed Jonah. So God calls the worm to do a prophetic action and eat the plant. And the sun hits Jonah in the head, and he says, I wish I were dead, you know? And God says, wow, like, is it okay to be upset, that upset about the plant? And Jonah, again, this is, this is satirical, right? Jonah says, yes, it would be better if I were dead. Now that the plant is gone, kill me. And God says, look, you're really mad about a plant that you didn't plant, and you didn't water, and it didn't grow. And how much more should I be concerned with a city that has 120,000 people that don't know their right from their left. Well, <clears throat> how old do you think kids are before they know their right from their left? This is children. This is small children. By the way, this, no city was that big. That's, just, that's a metropolis. Right? That's huge. Um, my daughter knew her right from her left when she was two, but it's because my mom spent a lot of time on that. I think probably most kids don't know till they're like, 
four, nine. My other one's like 16. <laughs> you know, you go to, it's interesting teaching high school, you still see people do this, <laughs> and they still pick that one, you know. Um, <coughs> so there's 120,000 kids that know they don't know from right for left, and many cattle, and that's where the book ends. There's a lot of, there's a lot of small innocent children and some animals. <laughs> the end. Uh, great ending. It, it is, this is, if you are a member of PETA, you know, people for the ethical treatment of animals, this is your book, because God cares about the animals and the babies, and to heck with the grown-ups, <laughs> right? Um, but of course, you get this, right? You, you, you get the story, and, and it's a satire. It's not sardonism, right? The goal is not to just poke fun and be malicious. It's to, it's to expose an, an improper attitude so that people can get their heads around it, okay, and sort of be different. The book, I think, does an interesting job saying that Jonah, along with Esther, are sort of having conversations with Ezra and Nehemiah. Because remember, Ezra says, and Nehemiah also, that people who have married Canaanite women and had children with them should put them out, women and children, because those foreigners are threats to their Jewish identity. And in Jonah, interestingly enough, People who are threats to their Jewish identity, Assyria, remember that's the one who destroyed Israel and farmed them out and interspersed them and created the Samaritans. Those people turn out sort of okay. Without pushing too hard, right? Jonah is a book written after 9-11 about militant Muslims who repent and are forgiven by God. Or pick something else, you know. Pick other people that you're justified in being really mad at. And Jonah is about those people being forgiven by God. That's strong, right? Think through. That's really, really strong in the Hebrew Bible. Many of our other books would say, kill Al-Qaeda, get revenge. Jonah says, God will forgive them. <laughs> and... Is it okay that you're mad about that? Uh, this really, that's, that's really a strong book, right? Again, but it's not true. The book is not true. It is definitely made up. But you get the point, don't you? Sometimes fiction is a little more true than fact. Hard. This is a hard one to react to. I just want this is a hard one, right? because maybe you're okay with the 9-11 stuff, but you know what I mean? There's something we're not okay with, and this book is about that. This book is about Sandy Hook, or whatever else just drives you nuts. There, that's my presentation of Jonah. Yeah. Doesn't seem like it is, but remember the wolf will lie down with the lamb and the ox will lie down with the bear. So it's other places. Yeah, sure. And this is saying, like, go ahead and do it now, right? And this is what shows up in the Good Samaritan, right? I mean, really, like, this theme shows up again in the New Testament, and people still struggle with it, right? I mean, there's people I'm related to that I would almost rather die than have them help me. 
I'm, I mean, I, it's funny, but I'm being completely honest. Yeah, although oddly enough, I've had that thought, yeah. like for real. <laughs> yeah. See, again, I think this one's actually funny. I don't think that one's funny. I just don't think so. Why did this make it into the Hebrew Bible, Jonah? Yeah, so to, so to actually back up, you know, at Council of Chalcedon, that's in 381, that's when, that's when in general the Christian Bible was set. But the way they did it was the Jewish Bible had already been set around the year 100. So they didn't, and what they did at Chalcedon is they reordered the Jewish Bible, but they didn't add or subtract to the Jewish Bible at all. So I think the, 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 the deal is, the, the, the bigger thing is, why did these make it in the Jewish Bible, and that's why they made it in Chalcedon. This one made it in, I'm positive, because it's about Purim and pogroms. <sighs> I'd like to think Jonah made it in because people thought it was a really good counterpoint to Ezra and Nehemiah. Which again say, foreigners are bad, get rid of them. Now, I think it's worth, as we start to transition or stay here, whichever you'd like to do, um, thinking through <coughs> that Ezra and Nehemiah are also relevant and valid and important, and we agree with them sometimes. I'll just give you an example of this. When my son was in the first grade in California, we'd just moved there, and one of the little boys in his class, now they're six-year-olds, was watching NC-17 movies at home. I would tell you I think that's child abuse. I didn't call defects. The little boy was coming to school and talking about the movies he was watching at home. And of course, I, along with any other parent in their right mind, did not want their child exposed to that. So what did we want to do? We wanted to get my son away from that boy, knowing that that boy was a reflection of, you know, parenting decisions we didn't agree with and ultimately... That was just dealing with the symptom and not the cause. When it's your child, you don't care about the cause. You want to get them away from the symptoms. That's real. That's what Ezra and Nehemiah say. Our kids cannot be ruined by influences that are not healthy. You don't even have to have a kid to understand what it's like to be a mama bear like that, right? I have folks that have put their children here at St. Thomas because their kids were in unhealthy situations like the one I described, where people were using language and talking about sexuality, and they just didn't want their kids exposed to that when they're 10. So they brought them here so that they could have a safer environment. And of course, they did that because they had the opportunity, given the resources they had, to do that. Not everybody can do that. It's not fair. But it's what most of us would do for our kids. So just We need to be honest about that. Uh, I think this book is about what happens when we're grown up. <laughs> we could choose to live like that our whole life, and it would never address the systems that create that kind of disparity and poverty and inappropriateness. We could say, we're just going to keep away from all the bad folks. I didn't think that's right. So 
Ezra and Nehemiah, in some way, describe the care we have as parents for our kids. And Jonah says, listen, at some point we do have to grow up. I don't know when. I don't know when. And that's why it's interesting, I think, that we, and this is representative of what we talked about for the last 16 weeks. It's a little uncomfortable, but it's a conversation to be had. It's not like Ezra and Nehemiah are always bad or always reflect something we're not comfortable doing. Because again, our children cannot defend themselves. The question is, how long do we live that way? How long? Because if you follow Ezra and Nehemiah all the way, you're going to go live in a monastery where there's no threats from the outside world to corrupt your faith. None of you are doing that because you're here. <laughs> so you disagree with them. And then this one's really tough, right? Because this is saying, like, wow, we're supposed to leave room for people who are vile human beings. The Assyrians weren't just political enemies. Those are the people who dashed babies on rocks, remember? And they didn't use handcuffs. They put a hook in your nose because you don't need handcuffs when you've got a hook in your nose. You pretty much go where the rope leads you. That's them. And those people get to repent and be forgiven. They didn't say they gave reparations. Didn't apologize to anybody. They just felt sorry. That's hard to get your head around, don't you think? <laughs> this is why I love the Hebrew Bible. I do. Because again, it's not like this is right and that's wrong, or this is wrong and that's right. It's, it's, this is life, and life is lived in conversation and in transition between these points. Notice the other thing about Jonah. I mean, he's a scumbag. Jonah's a scumbag, and he's a prophet. <sighs> that's the priestly tradition. <laughs> okay, so that, that's my treatment of Jonah. Other thoughts or spurs that Jonah or Esther gave you? Yeah, it had been nice, right? But I think since she was silenced, she just has to be quiet. I mean, in some ways, the literary type follows through. Yeah, the problem is, and I think this is helpful, she said, and I've already said, look, these aren't true, but I don't know that, 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 I don't know that that's right. I mean, listen, these things could have happened, I mean, not this one, not this one. Right. But this could have happened, maybe, but that's beyond the question. Th this story is not trying to tell you something that happened. It's trying to inform your everyday decision-making. And, and think through that the stories we have of Jesus are not any different. They didn't tell you how many times a month Jesus trimmed his fingernails. That would be factual information, and you probably don't care about that. Sometimes I want to know details like that. But that's not why they wrote that stuff. They wrote that stuff so that we could have a new vision and to teach us about people and ways and actions that could inform our living. They didn't tell you how long Jesus' hair was 
or when he had to shave for the first time. That's his history. This is not history. These are all stories. Does that make sense? It doesn't mean they didn't happen. It just means they're not being told to account for every fact. They're, they're being told to inform our practice or our conversation or both. Lots of them. And Mary Ruth referred to these as well. So at Council of Chalcedon, some books made it in slim. Like the, God, like the epistle of James barely made it. He did, but I mean barely. He was heeded. And it wasn't like people prayed and said, the Spirit is leading me to believe in James. How about you, brother? I mean, there were fisticuffs at these things. Right, so they, they, they fought it out verbally and physically if they needed to, and James slipped it in, slipped in. The shepherd of Hermas almost made it in, but didn't. You can read that online. I mean, you can just type that in, shepherd of Hermas. It is crazy. It's sort of like the movie Moulin Rouge, if you've seen that before, like absinthe-inspired. Um, <laughs> and it almost made it in. I just, it is, it's got like fairies and all kinds of crazy in it, you know, and I'm just really glad, you know, I'm just... Uh, yeah. So, so <clears throat> lots of books. And then, and then a lot of the things we don't even recognize that we think happened aren't biblical. They come from these bits. So just for example, when we went to Israel, we went out into Bethlehem and we went to the shepherd's cave, right? And Jesus was born in this shepherd's cave. Well, not according to the Gospels, he was born in a manger, not in a cave. A manger's inside a house. So why are they saying a cave? Because there's the book called the Infancy Gospel of, oh man, I think it's the Infancy Gospel of Thomas, in which Thomas is writing about what happened to Jesus as a little boy and says he was born in a cave. That's the same book that says Joseph was really old when he married Mary, which is why they didn't have any other kids. That's become Catholic tradition. The Bible never says how old either one of them was, except Mary was a young woman. So we have all kinds of these little tidbits that we sort of bring in, like Peter being crucified upside down. That comes from a letter called, what do you know, the Acts of Peter, which didn't make it into our Bible. But informs our tradition, right? So even though they didn't make it in, people still read them and thought they were important. That's kind of the bottom line. Oh, there's lots of books. Yeah, sure. You, you can't, it's called the New Testament Apocrypha or the Pseudepigrapha. A pseudepigraph is when someone <coughs> writes a book and says Paul wrote it and Paul didn't write it. <laughs> and they're trying to use Paul's name to get people to read what they wrote. Yeah. So Pseudepigrapha, Apocrypha, and <coughs> we have an Apocrypha that comes between our... our Hebrew Bible and our Christian Bible as well. We've always had that. <coughs> no one ever thought that should be Bible. We've always kept that as an appendix because we thought those documents were important for setting the context of what happens between the last book in the Jewish Bible and the first book in the Christian Bible. They include things like Maccabees and Susanna, and there's some crazy in that one. Too, in the <laughs> yeah, you want to read a really fun one, read Tobias. It's, in your, it's probably in your Bible, the one you have right now, if you have a new Oxford Annotated Bible. 
If you've got something like the NIV, it's probably not in there. But if you've got the Apocrypha, uh, it's called Tobit. Tobit, in, is, it's because it's in Aramaic, not in Hebrew. Tobit is a book about a guy who marries a lady who um, keeps getting married, and the night, she's, right when she's getting ready to um, consummate the marriage, a demon kills the groom. So this happens to one guy and then all six of his brothers. And then Tobit catches a fish <laughs> and burns the fish, and it smells so bad the demon leaves the woman. <laughs> it was a really stinky fish. So the demon leaves the woman, and then the archangel Raphael ties it up, and then they end up getting married, and everything's great. It's bizarre, though, right? I just—I mean, I—I—I'm I, not changing the plot line. That's it. I mean, it's <laughs> just really weird. And Tobit's father actually goes blind because a bird poops in his eyes. <laughs> this, this is part of the story. And some of the oil from the fish is rubbed on the blind man's eyes, and then he can see. So it's so stinky, it'll cure blindness and drive out demons. I mean, I, again, I'm not making this stuff up, so you, 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 can, you can read that. And then there's another book called Susanna about this woman who kills the, the general of Babylon because she dresses up like Esther and then gets the guy really drunk and cuts his head off. Uh, which is a little different from what Esther does, um, but a similar tactic, right? She uses her feminine wiles to decapitate the general. Um, so, so again, you can, oh, Susanna, don't you cry for me, right? So, 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 so you, can, you, you, you can read those if you like. They're in the Apocrypha. Shouldn't be. <coughs> I mean... Oh. It could be these. It could be these. It could be, again, the books that didn't make it in that lots of people read. Yeah? Yeah. Um, we should recap our last 16 weeks, though, right? I mean, is this, this helpful? A little bit? And the recap is probably going to be disappointing unless you drive it. Because <laughs> otherwise, I'm going to say stuff and you're going to say you already said that and who cares about what you have to say. So... Um, Maybe the thing to think through, you know, our book, I think, uh, does, this, does this thing, and, I, and I, again, I'm going to disappoint you initially, but I feel like I have to say this. Our book says something like, you know, this is setting the trajectory for the Christian story. And, you know, one of the things I like about the Episcopal Church is that we are affirmative about other religious traditions. So the way I grew up honestly says the whole Old Testament is getting us ready for what God is doing that's new. And the implicit assumption, right, is that Christianity is better than Judaism. I'm really uncomfortable with that viewpoint. Because um, I, I, I tell you, I did teach at a Christian school one time that was fundamentalist in orientation, and, and I was sitting at a faculty meeting in which we were discussing a book and our philosophy education, and, and one of my fellow teachers, who has a college degree, said very clearly that um, if two people are alike in all skills and one of them's Christian and the other isn't, the Christian will always outperform the non-Christian. In, in my pointy question was, so if Albert Einstein had prayed the sinner's prayer, he would have been smarter? And the answer was, yes. Which is crazy. I mean, I'm like, that's just crazy, right? I mean, I don't know how many Jewish folks you know, but I know some Jewish folks who are incredibly kind and philanthropic and generous. And, uh, you know, they, they uh, I think they're great. 
I couldn't be Jewish, but, but I think they're great. And I've met Muslim people that I think are just lovely folks. I mean, I do. Because my native language is Christian. It would be like asking me to change my mother tongue. I mean, here's the truth. Most of you are here because your parents or grandparents were Christians. And they introduced this to you as your native tongue. I mean, we didn't choose. Most of us did not choose from scratch. We're just going to convert to Christianity without some cultural influence. Most of us. Right? I mean, I'm suspicious that if my parents had been Jewish, I'd be a rabbi. And if my parents had been Muslim, I would be an imam or a mullah, depending on if we were, you know, Shiite or Sunnite. So... I think, and maybe this is really naughty, I'm probably really being bad here, I, I just sort of think that because it's my native speech, it will always be my native speech. I probably convert, could convert, you know, but like <coughs> Hinduism would be my second language, not my first. I don't know if that makes sense. Um, now, I, the native language I got had some ickiness in it, right? It's been yucky for me, lots of guilt, and God's angry and hates you and stuff like that. But, but it is my native speech, so I've tried to improve my, my grammar and my vocabulary. You know, that's part of my sort of Christian journey is to change my, my grammar and vocabulary. But, but I want to say up front, like for me, it's really difficult to say, oh, you know, those poor Jewish people, they just don't know about Jesus, because um, that's just so pejorative. I just not, it's not okay doing that. Does, does that make sense, what I'm saying? So that means, I think, the, 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 the important thing, right, is that what if all we had was the Jewish Bible? And I think this is a helpful way to think back over the last couple of weeks. There are a lot, a lot, a lot of tensions in the Jewish Bible, right? Women in much of Gen Genesis end up subjugated, but God created them equal in God's image and likeness. That's just an interesting, that's an interesting tension, right? Do we still struggle with women's equality as Christians? Oh yeah, I th I'd say so, wouldn't you, right? So again, talking about comparing things, it's not like the Christian position is better. Do, do, you know what I'm saying? Uh, do we still have problems with the denominationalism and people who think differently and get mad at people for thinking differently? Yes. Does that happen in Judaism and Christianity? I think it probably happens more in Christianity because there's more difference of us, right? I mean, anyway, I don't want to say which one's better. I just want to say this is, this is endemic, right? Do we still find ourselves hating people? Some of you may not. I do. And, and the Jewish Bible tells me what that's like. Now, I, I will tell you, um, I don't know that the Jewish Bible always justifies it like we read at face value. I think sometimes part of why we read this as scripture is it tells us what, where we will go if we follow things to their logical conclusion, and it's not good places. In some ways, I think these stories inform us in an <laughs> in opposite way of the surface read. Have we ever fought a holy war? Now, I know lots of people in America think Muslims made that up. Joshua made that up. In a holy war, you kill everybody and you burn all the goods. We ever done that? No. No one will fight that war because there's nothing in it for them. 
I think the Bible teaches us that. <laughs> we will not fight holy wars. You wouldn't send your child to fight a holy war. You would send your child to fight a war that represented freedom, but they're getting something. I mean, I mean, the point is, you get stuff when you fight. That's in the Bible. And by the way, uh, that's in Christianity and the church. We're still trying to figure that out. I think. Yes, ma'am. Man, I'll tell you, I actually think it's, I think it's, you know, we, we got to think through this. You know, I, I think um, it's important to remember that God is literate. God wrote two things, the Decalogue and on the wall in Daniel. And the rest of it, people wrote. And I'll tell you that sometimes I'm so convinced that God hates the same people I do that God ends up being very hateful. And I can even say this as a parent, and you know, maybe I'm going to shock you, but I used to think when I was like 17 and even 30 and so naive, and you'd hear about someone shaking their baby, I would think, monster, how could you ever do that? And I realized really fast why people shake their babies. <laughs> I knew I would never do it, but you see, I had resources. Like I had a wife, and I had a community would take care of me, and I didn't lose my job and get my leg run over with a car, and uh, this sort of business. I mean, it didn't happen to me, right? And I've been so mad at my kid. You know, I don't know if you felt like this one moment, like I was like, oh, my little baby is God, and then within five minutes, I could throw her out the window. <laughs> you ever felt like that? See, then the Hebrew Bible reflects exactly how you feel. And, and the truth is, we know better than to act on it when we're in our right minds, but it's extremely realistic. And sometimes, right, sometimes I think the story's written like it is to tell you, if you really think God is hateful and you park there, here's where the story goes. And are you comfortable with that ending? I grew up reading the story of Abraham and Isaac as a Christian that if God tells you to sacrifice your child, you do it. No questions asked, you obey God. Anybody else get taught that in Sunday school or church? What's really interesting, right, is that that's a new interpretation. From the beginning of Jewish scholarship, rabbis have said, of course you don't do that. <laughs> Shame on Abraham. This is how they handle their scripture, is they say it's there to teach us often what not to do. There's a whole lot of not what not to do, don't you think? A whole lot of what not to do. But don't forget that there's a whole lot of things that we don't even get in the New Testament, like the wolf will lie down with the lamb. There's such a compelling, impossible image. Swords being beat into plowshares and, sp and spears into pruning hooks. It, it, it's not that the Hebrew Bible has schizophrenia. I think it represents so many facets of realities we could and do live into. Just even think through the genres, right? There's 
we didn't read Song of Songs, but that's an erotic love poem. I mean, it's, 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 it's like the kind of smutty book you look for in the eighth grade, you know? It says things like, her breasts are like gazelles, and in the eighth grade, you would show that to somebody under the desk, you know, and it was such a scandal, <laughs> and it's in the Bible. <coughs> and that's real. I mean, that's, just, that's real. And, and it's not a metaphor for Jesus in the church. It's not. It's not. <laughs> If so, I, you know, I'm not disrobing anytime soon. I just want you to know. I mean, you, you know, I mean, <coughs> this is realistic material. So that's my case for it. Where are you sitting with the last 16 weeks? Lots of scumbags. Lots of scumbags. I mean, just people who, you know, in here and not, as we talked about at the time, were representative of real people with real real issues in them. Somehow they, somehow God's will kind of comes through. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's an interesting... Yeah, I mean, how many priests do you know? Well... Sometimes we're really great people. That just means you hadn't gotten to know us. <laughs> I, I, I'm not exactly kidding, right? I mean, the truth is that God works through broken people. That's, that's who God works through. Because there ain't any, there ain't perfect people, you know? I mean, again, like that's one of the Jewish reads, right? Is that if, there, if God can work with these people, God can definitely work with you. I often think I come out looking really good compared to these people, you know? Which, which means I can participate with God, right? I mean, that's a great reading. Look at the disciples. They didn't come out looking much better. They're always asking Jesus how they can become first in the new kingdom. They're just thinking about themselves, right? There's that guy, Simon, that says, can I buy that magic power? I mean, you know, like, like these are very human people. We just don't have as long as stories about them. What if we had a book as long as Genesis about the disciples, just them? I think we would, we would dislike them even more than we already do. Now, wait till we get to Mark. The disciples don't get anything right, <laughs> ever. The only people that are right are like real sick, <laughs> like, like they're, they're possessed by demons. You know, like they're the only ones who know anything in the Gospel of Mark, them and Jesus. <coughs> Yeah, interesting thing about the span. And you know what's really interesting is some of the older material is some of the material I prefer. It's not that newer is always better. I mean, think about that image in Genesis 2, old image of God playing in the dirt yeah. and making the first human being and breathing life into the human being. I mean, that's just a really poignant image. Hmm? 
I actually prefer it to the one in Genesis 1 that doesn't say how God did it at all. You know, just that we're in God's image and likeness, but not how. This other bit about caretaking and physically breathing and animating the clay is just it's rich, and it's 300 years older than, than, than the other one. It's, I mean, again, it's not like it's all bad, right? That's a beautiful image. You didn't have anything like that in the New Testament. You just don't have that in the New Testament. Not in the Hebrew Bible, we don't. Yeah, I mean, it, I think it's helpful to just say c- sort of how our, our Jewish brothers and sisters think about this. They didn't have a devil either. They believe in something called the Yetzer Hara, which is the spirit of temptation. Temptation to do something that's good or bad instead of something that's better or best. So the Yetzer Hara could be choose the good thing instead of the better thing. Because life's not always pick the good instead of the bad, right? I mean, there's the good and the better. Sometimes it's unclear which one's better, right? The yetzer hara, sure. I mean, it's not, it's not an English word, but you would spell it Y-E-T-Z-E-R, hara, ah. This, this is spirit, the evil or, or temp- tempter. And, and, the, and Jewish folks actually think this is really good because uh, it plays an important role because sometimes, you know, you are tempted when you're running five miles on mile one to quit. And you resist the Yetzir Hara and it inspires you to finish. Uh, it's something that simple. Uh, sometimes you don't even know your heart. Like you say, I don't know what I would do in that situation. And you find yourself in it and you resist the good and you choose the better, and this is how people grow. And so the Yetzir Hara is not necessarily evil. If we give in to it, we've done the evil thing. But this is the spirit of decision. (laughs) That's sort of the deal, right? And I'd say that's pretty much what the Hebrew Bible presents. And remember, it's not necessarily that Genesis says that people get the knowledge of good and evil. It's that people pick knowledge, good and evil. Because knowledge does really good things. Sometimes we do really evil things with knowledge.
But knowing about atomic energy is not inherently evil. What we do with it could be good or evil. So in the middle of having learned about how to split the atom, the question is, do we give in to the Yetzer Hara, or do we say, no, I don't think so? And there's another problem with the devil. The devil's really convenient because then God's hands don't ever get dirty. Except where'd the devil come from? And maybe you say God created the devil good and the devil became evil. How does the devil have so much power? Christianity doesn't ever resolve these issues. But those are really disturbing issues. Like I've heard that the devil owns the whole world and the, in this sort of business and God had to get it back. How did the devil get the whole world? I didn't read that in the Bible. Sure makes God look well, kind of weak, don't you think? I mean, is God fighting it out? Is it good and evil fighting it out? That's a Persian idea. That's not biblical. That comes from Zoroastrianism. The Bible's actually really clear who wins. <laughs> in fact, the Bible's really clear that there's no contest. And by the way, that's not just in Revelation. That's also in Exodus. Pharaoh isn't fighting Moses. Pharaoh's fighting God. Pharaoh cannot possibly win. Takes him a long time to figure that out. <laughs> right? And again, you may say, well, that's not just, and neither is Idi Amin. And it's true. Again, <laughs> this is sort of the bit, right? Why does God let that happen? No one knows. But then as now, it happens. The question, I think, the interesting thing about the Hebrew Bible is it doesn't say why, it says what God does, which is creates order out of that. Order. That's just from the very beginning, right? The world starts watery and chaotic, and God says, let there be some order, let there be some good stuff. doesn't say why it started that way, you know? Maybe things would have been better if God started from scratch, but in Genesis 1, God doesn't start from scratch. There's already stuff there. How did it get there? Well, surely God made it. Why did God make it messy? Who knows? <laughs> Jesus doesn't tell you the answer either. Jesus doesn't tell you why people get unclean spirits. He just spends time driving them out. Have you noticed that? I kind of wish he'd just like kill them all, you know? That'd be nice, but he didn't, he didn't do that either. If you... you, you <laughs> Do you know what I mean? In that way, he's a little disappointing. Realistic. This is rich and realistic. Um, it is. It's rich and realistic. But, but unclean spirits, again, I, I think that's really helpful because, again, I'm not sure demons are, but I think unclean spirits are just things that we just don't really understand that are not normal. Again, they just are around, and, and, I, and I know it's very imprecise medically to say this, and, but, but I can tell you, I mean, I've been to Auschwitz-Birkenau, and the hairs on my neck stood straight up. There's an unclean spirit at Auschwitz-Birkenau. Maybe 
it wouldn't, my hairs wouldn't stand up if I didn't know the history of the place, you know? But I've been other places and know no history, and I've had that same thing happen. Have you? What is it? I don't know. It's an unclean spirit. I mean, I think that's actually a pretty good term, you know? You've had that happen in Houston? Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? And I'm, not, and I'm not a nutty, weird guy, but I've gone places like that, too. The Crystal Cathedral, it was all fine. And then I went to that tower that was probably a rocket aimed at Russia. And when I went into that tower, it was like, ah. Uh. My wife grew up in this house in California. When they moved in, one of the rooms was painted black. And every Halloween, there were some goat legs thrown on the driveway for the first couple of years. That's weird. And everybody who slept in the black room has had a dream about an axe murderer. And my wife didn't tell me about this dream happening, and I slept in the room. And the next day, she was like, wow, you look bothered. And I was like, I don't ever have nightmares, but I had one. She was like, really? What happened? <laughs> well, there was like somebody trying to kill someone with an axe. She was like, that's my dream. I, I don't know what that is. Is it a demon? I think it's probably an unclean spirit. I just, you know what I mean? Like, I... Well, demon, sure. I'm sure it's a demon because demon means unclean spirit. That's what it is. Yeah, I can't explain it. I don't know. And I don't, I don't like that. You know, I don't like that. I can't explain it. I told you this week, you know, there is an exorcism in the Episcopal Church. There is one. The bishop has it in a book. I actually probably could request it. I don't, <laughs> I don't know that I'm comfortable doing an exorcism. Yeah, I, don't, I just don't know if I could do it. Oh, I am definitely comfortable anointing with oil. And you know what I'm really comfortable with? I'm really comfortable blessing a house. I don't think of it that way. Because anointing, you know, oil, and this is a good thing, right? This is why we use oil. In the Hebrew Bible, that's how you made a king. That means the anointed one, the Messiah, right? So, so I think we anoint people with oil at moments of, of, of grief and exasperation and illness to say, wow, like you're a royalty to God right now. In, in your moment of greatest weakness, God is, you're absolutely royal and of ultimate concern to God. I think it's really positive. I don't know that it says like, e I've never gone to a sick person and said, spirit of evil and sickness, come out of him. Now, now, I will tell you, I grew up hearing stories where people did that. I did. And I grew up Southern Baptist. We weren't Pentecostal at all. We weren't. But sometimes I'd hear those stories, and I don't know what to do with this. I don't know what to do with those stories. I've got to tell you, probably because of the way I grew up, I'm afraid, like, the thing would talk back to me. <laughs> and I wouldn't know what to say. You ever seen The Exorcist? I mean, th like, that's kind of freaky and weird. I just, you know, and here I'm telling you, like, I don't really know about demons, but I just, but I don't know about them, you know, and I, and I don't know about, tr I, it's okay, I'm okay with it, right? So, like, if you said, Mike, I see dead people in my house, I'd come bless your home, but I wouldn't exercise it. I just, <laughs> I just, you know. You know, this is interesting, because historically the word angel just means a messenger. And, and you know what? Like, I've really met lots of messengers um, that were human beings. 
So, so I mean, I think there's this question, right? Like, I guess there could be all that stuff, but who needs them? Who needs there to be that stuff? And remember that the angels in the Hebrew Bible, so there's angels, those are messengers. And then there's the other things, the cherubim and the seraphim, which are like grotesque, gruesome things. <laughs> like flying, burning snakes that cover their genitals with their wings. That's really strange. <laughs> we created them in our image. But you know that took a long time because if you know any, I mean, you know, you, you know the doctor's symbol is the snakes around the pole, right? The snakes have been around for a long time. That's the symbol of Asclepius, the Greek god of healing. When did it turn into babies in the Renaissance? You can go to the, uh, the Hagia Sophia, which is like the biggest dome in the world for a thousand years in Istanbul, right? It's across from the Blue Mosque. It's huge. And you can look at this old mosaic of the Holy Spirit, and it's a gold whirlwind. I mean, it's absolutely strange because it's not a beautiful dove. It's like a cyclone. So sometimes we forget, like, people didn't always think symbolically the way we think. And, and angels especially, right? Cherubim are four-headed, four-faced, eyeball-covered things that you wouldn't want. <laughs> just one day you'd scream if you met them, you know? Yeah. I think it'd be amazing if we had some art depicting cherubim and seraphim <laughs> at St. Thomas S and covered it, with, covered it with like a black cloth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, stained glass. I would, Christine would make one. I'm pretty sure she would. It's biblical, right? I mean. I mean, I hope this is helpful as just a reminder of the richness of genre and message and conversation that, that, that we've been through. I hope it's helpful. Um, and, and part of what Lila said is really interesting, right, is that we have far fewer authors in our Christian Bible. So think that we've got a lot of letters. Most of those letters are of the same genre, even if they had different authors. We've got, f oddly enough, four Gospels, who do not have the same thing to say about Jesus, hardly ever, we, we usually forget that. <laughs> right, the Gospels, if you put them in conversation with each other, paint really different pictures about what Jesus means and what he represents. Uh, I mean, I don't mean that they're radically different, but they have, they have really different pictures. We, sometimes we forget that. I think I could be a Mennonite. <laughs> Your native language. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing, right, that I decided, I think, I've really decided this a while ago, because I told you this business about native language, and I probably, you were like, oh, I don't want that guy being my priest. I mean, I sort of think, though, that this, for me, the most important part of my native language and heritage is the story of Jesus and Thomas, because I didn't think there's anything like that. You know, Jesus comes back with these wounds and Thomas wants to touch them. And sometimes we say he wants to make sure it was Jesus who died. I didn't think that's the deal. I think Thomas wants to put his hands in exactly the places that should kill Jesus, that should kill and feel life all around them. And that was what resurrection would be like, to feel life exactly in the points of death. This is a, 
You say, well, Mike, that, that's a metaphorical interpretation. It is, and I'm really drawn to it. I'm waiting <laughs> to feel life around certain wounds in my own life that way. I think probably we all are. But I, I, need, I need that story. I, I need that one. If I didn't know it, maybe I wouldn't need it. But I, but I need that story. And extremely critical for resurrection. And that the resurrected Jesus goes to heaven wounded. I need that to be true. They didn't go away. I just, I need that. No. No, Nobody, think about it. Nobody is resurrected. People come back to life and they die again. Not like we think of it. Yeah, but in Daniel, remember that what this looks like is that people die because maybe for such a time as this, they resist, but then they just get their life back. Now, we don't use the word resurrection for that. We call that resuscitation. Hap- we, I mean, we intentionally do that to Navy SEALs as part of the training. We kill them and bring them back to life. Like, we drown Navy SEALs and bring them back to life. Please don't challenge me on this. <laughs> This is part of your training as a SEAL. You are killed, drowned, and then you are brought back to life so that you know what will happen when you're tortured. This happens to all Navy SEALs. They're not resurrected because they will die again. Resurrection means you, you, you die, and then when you come back in such a way that you will not die again. So the only resurrected person in the Bible is Jesus. I didn't, well, I mean, so then the idea is you get your life back is probably the next step. But think how different resurrection of Jesus is. He doesn't, he doesn't get his old life back. <laughs> he gets a wounded life back. And he eats, but maybe he doesn't have to eat. And he can walk and, like, touch stuff, but he can walk through walls. I mean, it's, it's confusing. It's, it's really inconvenient to be wounded. Sometimes. Yeah, so I think it represents this transition in, in thinking. I don't know what to say about that. I'm, I'm just really interested in understanding how our ways of when you start to see about 200 years. Yeah. But think through how fast things can change. Can. In the year 2000, nobody thought, I'm just going to pick this one because it happened recently, nobody thought there would be any kind of federal defense for same-sex marriages. That's 18 years ago. And now not only the Supreme Court, but the preponderance of the U.S. population in favor. That's in 18 years. I'd say probably even less than that, to be honest with you, how fast that change came around. Think through how much the position of women in the workplace changed from the 70s till today. God, I hope we're not done, right? But but think through 
That's such a short span of time compared to how many thousand years. It's not because we're better. Sometimes events just speed up. Sometimes they slow back down. I didn't know why. Think how long it took to have any kind of civil rights legislation. Think how we still haven't lived into civil rights legislation. You, mean, you, you, you know what I mean? There's, there's ideas and there's beliefs and there's execution and then there's real conversion. You know, so, so y- in those 200 years, you know, think through that, <coughs> I mean, think through what's happening, really, in, in all the time we've read, most of it, it's Semitic people conquering Semitic people. So Jewish people are Semitic, but so are Assyrian people and Babylonian people. Then you get a new group, the Persians, they're not Semites. A lot changes. But then all of a sudden, another non-Semitic people comes from the West, that being Alexander. And then you get the Romans, another non-Semitic people. So <coughs> Assyria, Babylon, the Hittites, the Egyptians, comparable. <laughs> Persians, real different. Real different from all of them, the Greeks. Somewhat different from the Greeks, the Romans. Right? So you just, again, a lot changed because a lot of very different variables were introduced. Maybe. Hey, uh, I want to let you know that next week we're going to not follow the book. The book wants you to read Matthew for next week, all of it, and then read it again. I would prefer you read half of Matthew next week and then the other half the week after. So just kind of be naughty and divide this up. We'll read Matthew 1 through 14, 1 through 14 for next week, and then the week after we'll do 15 through 28. It's a quasi-artificial division. Now, we will take Fat or Ash Wednesday off. So we'll, yeah. <laughs> and then we'll, so, so we're going to do Matthew next week, take a week off, come back, finish Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Okay? Thanks for sticking around. I sure hope that if you, this has been difficult, you like what comes next. And really grateful that you're, that you're here. And see, look, we're halfway through. We're halfway through. The Yetzer Hara has tempted you to leave. (laughs) Thanks for resisting. Uh, See you next week.